These are the real problems with the crow. There is a legend that a crow can carry a soul back from the dead to seek justice and put the wrong things right. To move your death. I'm dead. And I move. Brandon Lee. It's not a good day to be a bad guy. The Crow Rated R. The Crow was released on May 13, 1994 by Dimension Films. Dimension Films was a subsidiary production company under the banner of Miramax Pictures. Miramax Pictures had created Dimension Films because they wanted to get in the business of distributing action films and horror films especially because they saw the box office value of releasing such genres, but they didn't want to release it under their precious, prestigious Miramax Picture label because they were only in the business of releasing awards contenders every year. I mean, to give you an idea, they were releasing movies like The English Patient, Shakespeare in Love, so they felt like it wasn't going to be a good look for them to be releasing horror and action movies under that same banner. So here comes Dimension Films, and if you, everybody knows Dimension Films also release movies such as Scream and movies like that. They decided to distribute The Crow. The Crow is actually based on the James O. Barr graphic novel. It's a very popular and underground novel that not a lot of people knew of at the time. And what was interesting about that is the fact that in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, production companies didn't have the distribution rights to something like Marvel or DC. So they were looking towards other comic book properties to see if they could adapt. Enter Dimension Films licensing the agreement with James O'Barr to distribute The Crow. Things were starting to work. The paperwork was done and James O'Barr was on board with a lot of creative consulting in his back pocket. So they had director Alex Proyas and him working closely together to see how this was all going to work out. Well, things were working smoothly with their production designer as he was creating templates and storyboards that looked identical to the graphic novel, so everything's working out well. Well, <laughs> then comes to the point where they have to cast the main character. The main character is Eric Draven, and much like the comic book, Eric Draven is a fallen rock star who was gunned down and brutally murdered by a group of thugs on Halloween Eve, the night before him and his fiance's wedding, as they were going to be married on Halloween Day. And... What happens is that this mystical crow comes one year later to bring his soul back from the dead to exact revenge on these would-be killers. Whenever you're looking at something like that, they were looking for somebody that could carry a lot of emotional weight because Eric Draven is heavily tortured. I mean, he is a brooding and angsty type of comic book hero. Whenever the production company first originally brought Brandon Lee on board, James O'Barr was just immediately discrediting everything about him. He was like, no, this is a guy that's done action movies before. We don't want him in this movie. You know, he hasn't ever done anything with such brevity and such such heartfelt emotion that's going to require to play this character. And so Alex Proyas knew something that O'Barr didn't. He was fully convinced that Brandon Lee could play him. So they casted Brandon Lee and the rest was history. Now, for a quick backstory on Brandon Lee, he was born on February 1st, 1965 in Oakland, California. He is obviously the son of the late, great martial arts superstar Bruce Lee. Now, if you don't know who Bruce Lee is, I don't really think I have to explain too much of who his father is and the kind of impact that he had in cultural arts and martial arts, for that matter. But if you happen to not know who the iconic Bruce Lee is, I suggest you go and do a little bit of research on Google. He is quite the iconic figure. Brandon Lee had got a good head start in Hollywood because of who his father was, and that namesake was what was really propelling him to take these early roles in his career. 
where it was basically martial arts stuff. He was performing as an action superstar, very much like his father was. And I think that he was starting to get into this routine of repetition. He was making the same kind of movies over and over again with a little bit of a plot differential. He had scored some success there. Actually, he scored quite a bit of success with Showdown in Little Tokyo, co-starring Dolph Lundgren. And it was his 1992 film Rapid Fire that really jettisoned him into this limelight as being a new martial arts superstar. And Brandon Lee was thrilled of the excess, sure, but he really wanted to be taken seriously as an actor himself. He wanted to be more known for his performances and his acting ability rather than being typecasted as another action star. That was the one thing that propelled him to move into the direction of auditioning for The Crow. He thought that this was a perfect vehicle for him to showcase not only his physical attributes, but also his acting prowess, which he definitely does in this movie if you've seen the film. So he goes in there, talks to director Alex Proyas, pitches his idea, they do the audition, and Alex Proyas was blown away by this. He didn't even expect Brandon Lee to have this type of emotional resonance to the character and immediately casted him. And it did take a little bit of convincing on the production standpoint because, again, people were thinking, well, you don't want this to be uh, another kind of action vehicle, do you? And Alex Proyas said no. The one person that it really took quite a bit of convincing to was <laughs> creator James O'Barr as he had final say on who was initially going to be playing Eric Draven. After a couple of days of production went underway, they started doing some shoots, test shoots, and everything with auditioning on the set, rehearsing, and after a few days of filming and seeing some of the dailies, James O'Barr was more than convinced that Brandon Lee was their right guy. We are full-on underway. Now, obviously, the most notable thing that occurred on this set, the real problem as it is, is the death of Brandon Lee. But before we get to that, there were many on-set workers that believed that the film was cursed prior to this event. So even though that's the one most notable thing about the production of this film, there were a couple of other things that actually transpired before that actually happened. On the first day of filming, the very first day, all the sets are being constructed and everybody's working on production hands, carpenters, electricians. Everybody's on the set at Screen Gym Studios there in North Carolina where they were filming the majority of the film. And on the very first day of filming, a carpenter was nearly electrocuted as he was wiring up the lighting grid for the cinematographer. And that in itself was a bad omen, but people thought, okay, accidents happen, things will occur, accidents may take place. So they kind of brushed it off. Nobody was injured or hurt in that accident or semi-accident. But a couple of days later, a construction worker accidentally drove a screwdriver through his hand while building the same set. So that is starting to increase the sphere notion. Okay, that's strike number two. Things are not going very well, but everything else is okay. The guy had to go and have the screwdriver removed from his hand, and he was obviously taken to a medical hospital where they did so, had a couple of stitches done, and shot for tetanus because that's kind of the thing that you would need to do if you ever drive any hardware through your physical body. The next thing that happened was a sculptor working on props and certain pieces that were going to be laid out around the set was really upset due to an altercation that he had had with another person on the set. And he was so pissed off that he crashed his car through the studio's back lot when he was asked to be removed from the production. So there was a major car crash at the back end of the lot because this guy was mad about another incident that transpired with another production designer. These are some of the things that were already taking place on the set, and I figured that it would be a good sign to start there because we are about to get into some really heavy stuff. Now, already the crew is convinced that this thing is cursed because people are having accidents, someone nearly electrocuted themselves. Luckily, nobody was hurt during that studio demolition derby. 
And luckily for the cast and crew, these were the only incidents that had taken place so far. So everything is starting to go a little bit more smoothly. Everything's working out. Shots are being made. Everybody's on time. And it's looking like this thing is about to be wrapped up. And now comes the tragic scene that everybody's been curious about. The onset death of Brandon Lee. Now this scene actually takes place at the 12-minute mark of the movie. So while it happens early on in the film, this was actually one of the last scenes that they were going to shoot for the movie altogether. And this was a decision made by Alex Proyas and Brandon Lee because they really wanted to weigh in on the death of Eric Draven, the character. And Brandon Lee had this really philosophical sensibility about life and death, and he was trying to put that into his performance, which makes a lot of this so much more eerie than it actually is. This is how it's set up. Brandon Lee walks in, and he's going to be walking in to the thugs that are assaulting his fiance. and they turn to him, and they basically throw knives at him, they shoot him down, and they kill him. Now, the actor, Michael Massey, who plays Fun Boy in this movie, he's the one that has the gun, prop revolver, mind you, that goes off and initially is what strikes him fatally. There have been many thoughts about how this happened or why this happened, but more of a scientific notion is that there were dummy rounds and there are blanks. Now, a dummy round is something that will be fired from a gun as an actual projectile. These dummy walls are shot into walls and other stage props to give it that authentic look. Now, blanks are what are used when an actor has to fire on another actor during a scene. And what had accidentally happened, a major miscalculation on the prop department, was that there was a single dummy round mixed in with the blanks. So basically, what's going to happen, if you're firing blanks, nothing's going to come out. There's no projectile. But when you're firing a dummy round, there will be a projectile from the weapon. So it essentially becomes a live round when you're firing it at a human. Because the dummy rounds are technically supposed to be fired against other hard, concreted materials, rubber, stuff like that. So it can easily penetrate the human body. So even though it wasn't a real bullet, the force at which this dummy round becomes shot out from the gun, it is comparable to that of a real bullet. So when Massey fired it, Lee was struck in the stomach and two arteries were immediately severed, allowing him to be bleeding out. There were some on-set and off-set issues that a lot of the studio heads were trying to scramble around in this situation, trying to figure out what it is exactly that happened, because they didn't know initially what had happened, because Brandon Lee was actually wired up with squibs, and now a squib is something that a lot of action films have always carried around because what a squib is, it's basically a packet that contains fake blood. Think of it as like a ketchup packet, right? So you have these squibs or fake ketchup packets under your clothes. Now what happens is that either the actor, actress, or on-hand prop master will have a controller that when they hit this button, it'll make that squib packet explode. So whenever you're shooting blanks at something, obviously nothing's going to be striking the actor. What happens is that you hit that button, the squib packet will explode, and it creates this illusion that blood is coming out of your body, making it look more realistic. The studio head was fearful for, of course, lawsuits. This is their worry. They don't want anybody to get sued. They don't want production to go under. I mean, they kind of think of things monetarily before humanitarily. So their thought was, oh, well, it's the squib because they, they don't want to get anybody in trouble. They don't want anybody arrested. So they automatically blame the squib. And whenever Lee was rushed to the hospital, he was in surgery for six hours and he died at 104 in the afternoon on March 31st, 1993. 
This continued to have authorities investigating this because police needed to have closure on the issue. So again, the police believed that the initial squibs rigged to the least person had caused his wounds because that's what the studio was telling them. And then when the other actor, Massey in hand, shot it, it went off and the bag exploded inside of Brandon Lee rather than outside. So it became it became an issue where the squibs were to be blamed because they were saying that the squib packet went off in the opposite direction rather than the way that it was supposed to, causing the internal damage to Brandon Lee. But the doctor who performed the emergency surgery on Brandon Lee, he disagreed with it completely. His name was Dr. Warren McMurray of New Hanover Regional Medical Center in North Carolina. Now, this is the location of where Brandon Lee died. Now, Dr. McMurray, he concluded that the fatal injuries were consistent of a bullet wound, and he felt that that was most likely what they were dealing with as he had dealt with bullet wounds before. He said with the diameter size, with the way that Brandon Lee's wound looked, it, he thought it was an actual bullet. So it turns out that it was the dummy bullet, in fact, what struck Brandon Lee and caused his inevitable death. Now, the professionals in the industries, like Bruce Lee's close friend, John Sowett, was convinced that a squib charge could not do any damage like that. So he came on and they asked him about this. He came in and said, I've worked on films and directed a few low-budget features. As powerful as squibs are, I can't recall a single incident where anyone was injured by them. Generally, they are pretty powerful. They do carry a hefty explosive charge. If you're not well padded, you can get a bruise at most. And again, Dr. Murray added that he saw no signs indicative of an explosion or an entry wound or burn. Dr. McMurray said that the, the dummy bullet not only severed his arteries, but it made a straightforward path to Brandon Lee's spine, where the x-rays showed a lodged metal object. And the Wilmington Police Department consequently classified the incident as an accidental shooting. Now, even though the police concluded that Brandon Lee's death was an accident, there are theories that Lee was intentionally killed. Now, when Bruce Lee died, similar rumors positioned that the Chinese mafia had orchestrated that incident of Bruce Lee's death. Now, those rumors remain just that. And another rumor that has persisted is that the crew used the scene in which Lee died in the actual movie. Now, this is false. The scene that you see in the final print or final cut of the movie, the theatrical release, like the movie that we all watch... That is not Brandon Lee. They did not use the actual scene where he was shot as they thought that was too just morbid, disgusting, and poor taste. But what they actually did was they actually used early CGI to help complete the film. They had uh, Brandon Lee's stunt double go in and they composited a couple of facial CGI recognition technology. Even back then, they had this stuff. So that was how they were able to complete that scene as it was the last one to be shot. And a couple of alleyway scenes. And an interesting bit of trivia that I found was that his stunt double was actually Chad Stelhelski, who is the director of the John Wick movies. That was kind of interesting to find out myself. Now we're going to do a little bit of an aftermath of the movie. The movie completed filming, and Alex Proyas was still on the fence about releasing it. He kind of wanted to scrap it. Also, I have to say that the footage of him being shot has been completely wiped from existence. All of the prints, all of the film has been completely destroyed, and Alex Proyas made that a point to get rid of that, to eliminate that, so there is no actual footage of him being shot. He was still on the fence to release the film, but it was actually Eliza Hutton who was Brandon Lee fiance was the one that convinced him to release the film. He had spoken to her many times about this and something that was also very tragic about this incident was that they were two weeks away from being married. Much like Eric Draven dying the night before his wedding, Brandon Lee 
died two weeks before he was supposed to get married to Eliza Hutton. So this is also why you see for Brandon and Eliza at the end credits of the movie, because they also dedicated the film to Eliza Hutton. And it was her blessing that gave Proyas the inspiration that he needed to complete and release the movie. That was devastating to hear, and it just gets worse and worse. We also need to speak about Michael Massey, again, the actor that played Funboy, the actor that shot Brandon Lee, and how he has had to live with that all these years. And I actually wanted to play you an excerpt from an interview that he did with Extra back in 2005, the first time that he actually spoke about this incident. Because not only did he ever never want to talk about it, he took a break from acting just because he was so traumatized by this. You know, you don't you don't show up to work as a professional actor and anticipate literally killing someone, taking someone's life. So the fact that this happened to this guy, I, I can't imagine the the horrendous feeling that he had as a as a person, as a human being, someone who loved this art and someone who got along very well with Brandon Lee. So here is an excerpt from his interview with Extra back in 2005. And of course you you have experienced a, a, a stunt in your life that went tragically awry. Tragically awry and it's uh, and I've never talked about this on camera and it it was shooting of the crow and Brandon died during it and um since then, I am very conscious of the dangers of making a movie, and, and it is a dangerous proposition. We, we throw ourselves out there with, at least me, with very little regard for my body when I'm doing it, and you're using different props that can be really dangerous, especially if they're not treated well. I mean, what happened to Brandon was uh, a, a tragic, accident and um, it's something that I'm that I'm gonna live with it's taken me <clears throat> took me the time it took to be able to not so much put it in perspective but to be able to move on with my life and I never felt the, the need or the obligation to talk to anybody about it other than his fiance at the time and his mother who I called and um, then I had to do like we all do we all have experienced tragedies in our lives and we all find our way through them to get to the other side to be able to go on because if not you want to be able to to go on with life and that's what I had to do with this this experience and as I said it's it's very personal and it's um, it's something that I want to make sure when I work that it's that it's never repeated and therefore I'm very conscious of the possibilities of things going awry on a set and I'm, I'm very very safety conscious well it's like everybody as I said has gone through it some tragedy in some way shape or form or if they haven't they're very lucky and I don't see them just going down the street and grabbing someone off or someone they don't know putting a mic in their face and say hey listen talk about that car wreck that you had where some little kid lost their leg it's not 
it's not that I've been avoiding talking about it. It's just it doesn't seem to me to be relevant to to anybody else except the people that were involved. And to me, for my journey through life, how I was able to get to the other side of it, and um, and it was a very slow and thoughtful process. I mean, I didn't know it was thoughtful at the time, but I just took a year off and I went back to New York and didn't do anything. I didn't work, didn't do anything. I just spent it with close friends and family and just to get through it like any of us get through a tragedy. But it's it, it was a tragedy. The only difference with this tragedy is that it was it happened with cameras rolling and it was a big media thing. And which I think is is too bad, you know. The thing is, it wasn't supposed to happen. It know, absolutely wasn't supposed to happen. I wasn't even supposed to be handling the gun in the scene until we started shooting the scene and the director changed it. Uh, it wasn't supposed to happen for a myriad of reasons. He was so far off that it had it been a real gun, we wouldn't have been able to hit the side of a barn with it, you know. He, it, it, there was... What the bottom line is, it did happen. Like any accidents aren't supposed to happen. The car accident isn't supposed to happen, if you look at it in retrospect. It did happen, it did happen in the media spotlight, and I don't feel, as someone who is closely involved with Brandon, with the film, and the accident, to me, it's just never come up as something to talk about it because why would you do it? It's not something that I feel... It's a very personal thing. But you have gotten over it. I, I don't think you ever get over something like that. And say, No, I've, I've gone through it a lot and things keep changing. I know Brendan's fiance now who's married to somebody else and has a little girl and I see she shops at, in this store, at my wife's store, and... Um, and I see her in the park with a little girl, and I, and I, you know, I get all sorts of joy and thoughts about that. And it's not Brendan's kid, and um, you, you just keep on going. You know, life is is extraordinary and very resilient. You know, and you you take the good where you see it. You know, and uh, that's how that's how I have. But no, I'm not going to ever talk about this again because. I don't see why anybody would want to talk about it again. It's none of their, nobody's business. It's not that I'm hiding behind it or I go around saying, oh, I can't go on because this happened. It's all been part of life or part of the fabric of my life. Long haunted by this tragedy, Michael Massey died of stomach cancer on October 20th, 2016. The film's release came to great box office numbers. People didn't know if it was the movie or if there was some kind of morbid sensibility as to see a movie where Brandon Lee died. The curiosity factor there is just so high. So there were so many elements going into the release of this movie as to why the box office numbers were so good. I like to think it's because the movie turned out to be great. It's a perfect mainstay for me. I watch it every Halloween because it takes place on Halloween Eve, leads into Halloween Day. It was Brandon Lee's highest grossing movie and it definitely was the film that was going to jettison him into the next level. He was going to be a bankable star, a dependable star, a respectable star, which is exactly what he set out to do when he accepted the role of Eric Draven in The Crow. 
Now to conclude this episode, I'm going to be playing an audio excerpt from Brandon Lee's final interview that he conducted while on the production of The Crow, courtesy of Dimension Film Special Features. And I want you to pay close attention to what he says about life and death and the parallels between his life. And it just makes this interview even more haunting and even more sad. The crow in the film, the bird in the film, you could really just look at as a guide, almost a piece of him that guides him back into his life and reminds him who he was, what happened to him. This is a person who has been pushed right to the limits of his ability to cope with what is going on and in a sense is quite mad sometimes. In a sense is completely insane. Almost in the sense that you might think of an insane person having voices, you know, uh, more rational voices that uh, try and guide him, more irrational voices that come from a more emotional, more deep-seated place. I think that the crow is that rational voice. The crow is his god. crow helps Eric do what he has to do in a very practical sense. It leads him to the places that he has to be. It helps him find the people that he has to find. It's a story about justice for Vic. His mission is to find the man who killed him and his fiancée and kill them. It's a wonderful role, and it really is a role that you have to take risks with, and it gives you a wonderful opportunity to take those risks and stretch because you tell me how somebody who comes back from the dead is going to behave, you know? And that's one of the wonderful things about playing this character is it's a real, you can really take the gloves off in playing this part because there are no rules about how a person who has come back from the dead is going to behave. And then there's the part of him that is filled with rage towards what was done to him. And one of the things I like best about this movie is the fact that all of those parts of the character are given balance on the screen. He's torn up. He's torn up really badly, emotionally, physically, and psychically. I think that the appeal of Eric's mission is that it is a very pure one. He has come back to seek justice. I've done other films that have had uh, violence in them, but I must say I've never done any Thing where I felt that the violence was as justified as it is in this. This is justice, and I truly feel that it is. And I truly feel that if I were in the same situation, I would do the same thing. Because we do not know when we will die, we get to think of life as an inexhaustible well. And yet everything happens only a certain number of times, and a very small number, really. How many more times will you remember a certain afternoon of your childhood an afternoon that is so deeply a part of your being that you can't even conceive of your life without it. Perhaps four or five times more. Perhaps not even that. How many more times will you watch the full moon rise? Perhaps 20. And yet it all seems limitless. This is the point of view that this character is coming from in the whole film. Because it has been brought sharply into focus for him how precious each moment of his life is. This is the best role that I've had the opportunity to get my hands on in a film. I thought to myself, if I were given the opportunity after a year of having been dead to come back, who would I want to share it with? Who would I want to see? And the person I would want to see would be my fiance, Eliza, because I'm getting, I'm, I'm engaged, I'm getting married after the film. Ugh, absolutely moving stuff. It was exceptionally sad whenever he said that he wanted to come back. If he could come back for anybody, it would be his fiance Eliza. I don't know about you, but that, that kind of got me. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Real Problems. And if you would like to ask any questions or submit any corrections or anything like that, please do so by writing me on Gmail. We are at real, R-E-E-L, problems podcast 
at gmail.com. I'll be sure to read all of your emails and respond. And if you want to follow the show, please do so on Instagram at R-E-E-L underscore problems underscore podcast. We are there. You could also follow me at cinema underscore Steven. I'll be sure to address anything. If you have any suggestions of topics that you want me to talk about, I actually have a long list as I was doing research for some of these movies. So I'm pretty sure it'll probably be on that list. But if there's something that you would like for me to discuss, I will do so in a future episode. I would just like to thank you all for listening. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, leave a star rating, leave a review, and Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible. We're streaming everywhere now. So wherever you listen to podcasts, please subscribe. And also, if you like this episode, please subscribe to the Screen Addicts podcast. This is another podcast that I do where I co-host with my good friend TV Viegas as we talk about movies, TV, and other pop culture related subjects pertaining to everything on the screen. I appreciate you all for listening to this episode. I am Cinema Steven, and that's a wrap.